<laughs> yes, heavily confirmed. Thank, Thank you. Please put the card into the card reader and place the Let's talk for a moment about royal warrants. I am slightly fascinated by this because, and now I'm going to brag for a second, Roads and Kingdoms, third book, Pasta Pane Vino, Deep Travels Through Italy's Food Culture, written by Matt Goulding and edited very lightly by me, won Food Book of the Year from Fortnum and Mason in London last year. Now, Fortnum's sells things like teas and jams and something they call luxury hampers, and they have a royal warrant, which means they are certified providers to high-ranking members of the royal family. So I thought this would be a fancy thing, the award ceremony that we went to at Fortnum's last year, but it went way beyond that. It was an ocean of butlers and crumpets and deep red pile carpeting. And Prince Charles came and made a good-natured speech, and Dame Judi Dench was there sitting on a sofa, drinking white wine, and it was all so goddamn British that it nearly gave me spontaneous rosacea. However, that kind of posh and plummy Britishness is far from the only thing, and very far from the best thing, about London. Take that royal warrant. It's not just for luxury goods. I didn't ask, but I'm sure Prince Charles also needs toilet paper and the occasional pack of Pall Mall cigarettes, just like the rest of us, not just luxury hampers. And for that, there is Weight Rose and Little Weight Rose, which is something like a Winn-Dixie or Safeway in the States, but in England, it has a royal warrant of appointment. The Little Weight Rose Bodega in South London, where I bought the Prosecco for this episode, is filled with people from all over the world, displaying a dozen different versions and visions of Britishness. Same goes, actually, for those Fortnum Awards, in which the British Bangladeshi Nadia Hussain won Food Personality of the Year last year, and where the guest of this episode, this one right here, Sammy Tamimi, had the book that he co-wrote with his business partner Yotam Odolengi shortlisted for Food Book of the Year a few years back. It's people like Sammy, a Palestinian who came to London from Jerusalem to cook over 20 years ago, who make this city complex and cosmopolitan and delicious. Sammy and I sat down last year, the second in my London episodes for Luminary that we are now re-releasing free and for the people. Sammy and I talked about his new book with Tara Wigley called Palestine, a cookbook, and about that weight rose Prosecco that I bought, scanned, by myself, in the self-checkout aisle, by royal warrant of appointment to Her Majesty Elizabeth II by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. That's her actual full title. But hey, let's hear it for the real royalty of the realm. The cooks, the writers, the journalists, the little weight rose crew who come from all over the world to make London the city that it is. This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. You know, we'll try to sort of pretend like this is how friends usually talk. <laughs> I don't even know you. I just met you. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. And now already I'm sticking microphones in, in your face. Uh, hi, Sammy. I'm Nathan. Hi. <laughs> See, now we've met. I um, I'm very excited about the drink. <laughs> so I I heard you're a fan of prosecco. I do, uh, and I'm a fan of um, low class things apparently. So uh, I went right across the street to Little Weight Rose. It's not even the Big Weight Rose, and uh, and found the prosecco they have. And actually, they're actually in the mini fridge. It's, it's a good prosecco, you know. Is it? it yeah, is. it is. Okay. Yeah, I've never seen it in uh, one portion bottle. But. <laughs> right. That's the other thing. I've, I've got these 200 milliliter bottles. That you are, just need a straw. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are like, yeah, for a little toot by the riverside or something. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it's it's a good Prosecco. It's uh, Vino Spumanti DOC San Leo. All right. I, I had it before. I mean, it's not the best, but it's it's a good Prosecco. Oh, man. So you can 
rest now. It's not really cheap. <laughs> it's not so cheap. I, although I have to say, I you know, I've had quite a, a string of taking some of the world's greatest chefs uh, like yourself and then just making them drink really crappy things. <laughs> and sometimes they're into it and sometimes they're less willing, you know. Uh, great. Yeah, and most kind of uh, fancy places and uh, in London as well, they, they serve Prosecco in a champagne glass. <laughs> But actually, you should have it either from a water glass or a white white wine glass. Really? Yeah. So I'm 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 ahead of the curve here. I know. All right. Well, here we are. Fre- freaking me out. In hotel water glasses. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, Sammy. Yeah. Nice. Um, that is that is absolutely fine, and it's eleven fifteen back home in New York, so I. I'm really getting my morning drinking going. Um, <laughs> always a benefit. Um, so I was talking with your agent and mine, Kim Witherspoon, before we came out here. Mm-hmm. And she said, Sammy, he's got a book coming out. Yeah. Tell me about the book. And the title is uh, Palestine. Palestine means Palestine. Unfortunately for, for us, it's going to be next year. It's going to be published in uh, fall 2020. That's fine. We are tre- um, tremendous hype machines. We I are know. Ready, ready to. Uh, uh, it was a very, very exciting. I mean, it started with an idea. I wanted to do something that uh, start back when when we started with Olengi. Uh, Middle Eastern food was uh, cheap, doner kebab and Leban- really bad Lebanese sh- uh, restaurants in London. And somehow we opened. I mean, we started the whole kind of wave of quality Middle Eastern food and then the book came out and then another book and another book and the market wasn't then ready for Middle Eastern food cookbooks. Now I, now it's, it's kind of, you know, Middle Eastern food is very popular and uh, people eat it and want to cook it and Palestinian cookbooks just started to come into the market about Four, three, four years ago, Palestinian like direct like yeah like like Zaytun like, yeah like uh, Palestinian on a plate, Palestine mm-hmm. on a plate. Uh, she also uh, published uh, uh, Baladi, Palestinian Table. Uh, so all these really wonderful uh, books. And yet here you are, along with Yotam Ottolenghi, you know the kind of running the premier Middle Eastern high end as you said, the kind of the pioneers in that space in London. Yeah. Of course, Kim wanted a book with you. <laughs> I was I, mean, I was actually surprised when um, I remember Biotam talking to her about it. And I, I, we always had a almost harsh conversations about, you know, how we're going to fit this book into, you know, our marketing kind of, uh, because, you know, as you know, Biotam is, is an Israeli and Palestinian, uh, uh, people kind of choose to get to one side of the coin you know, and how we're going to fit it into our uh, brand and but then um, when when Kim said yeah I like challenges <laughs> then so, it kind of said uh, okay well that's an interesting question right so Yotam's Israeli like you said you're Palestinian uh, Otto Lange is his last name it's the name of the flagship restaurant it's the name of the 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 first book right yeah it's um, it's a it's a brand as well it's a brand right yeah. so so now Palestine is not your brand no it's not <laughs> as, and it, as, it won't be right no. uh, you're not opening the Palestine restaurant be never know ah okay all right um, I, I won't get any firm mm, denials here no no we, we, there's no nothing in a, a kind of plan but you know who knows but this is the first time that you're doing a a big project a book project that is not like directly stamped Otto Lange. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make sure that um, uh, it's a very sensitive subject and, you know, between Palestine and Israel and uh, uh, and also I see it as um, something that I wanted to kind of uh, do without being under the, you know, the although it is, but it's not an, under the, the Potalengi kind of umbrella because I wanted it to hopefully be translated to Arabic. Hmm. And if Otolengi or Yotam is kind of involved in it, then it won't be. Right. I guess that's one aspect of branding that 
and yes, it feels like an understatement to say it, it's complicated. Between it's Israel. really complicated yeah. because you know our books also sell in the Arab world. I know they do, but uh, it's all kind of hush hush. It's like underground. Yeah, well, it's not underground. They sell them in cook in book bookshops, but uh, they don't have representatives, and also they don't get translated because of you know how sensitive it is. I want my book to be hopefully translated, but also legally being sold. Right, got it. There's the sense that Autolenghi, the the books marked Autolenghi are sold, are for sale, yeah. but they're not translated into Arabic. Yeah. Um, a book called Palestine that is your project, you feel has a better chance of, I mean, you, you will get it translated into Arabic. I, I hope so. And, um, you know, th- this is not the, the, the only kind of reason behind that. It's uh, because because it's a really sensitive subject, you don't want Yotamut Lengi in a book or Yotalengi as a company because a lot of people think Yotalengi is an Israeli company. They don't know that it's a you know, kind of juggle between Palestinian, Israeli, one Swiss. And most of the people that work for us are kind of, it's a melting pot. It's, you know, they, they come from different parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, me and Yotam do one part of, or two parts of the uh, kind of the, the, the company, but we have a lot more people behind it. Uh, the the books is a different story because it's a you know it's a publicity. So and they do well. Yotam as he is, you know, he's he's the front of the uh, company. So it, which is a great for you know for for the business and for selling books. I mean, functionally, you operate the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I was operating, you know, all the kitchens. Got it. But that's that's essentially how the partnership had worked. Yeah, we have Yotam's. more people. We have um, a lovely lady called Cornelia. She's a general manager. Basically, she controls everybody's lives. We couldn't think of the business without her. We also have Noam. He's the he's a brain behind Otolenghi. He he's the thinker. It's like okay, where where are we gonna go now? Uh, what's the next step? So he's kind of always he doesn't rest and say okay, we got. We achieved this. Let's kind of sit on it. No. So it's the, the I would guess the usual collection of brains and guts that you need to run uh, even a, a a mini empire. Mini empire. Yeah. It um, is. Of of restaurants, but this you know this word Israeli. Yeah. Uh, attached to Yotam, you know, it sounds like you're describing that does have this kind of gravitational force, or it kind of blocks out the rest. Um, which is, I would imagine, the opposite of why you guys are in this business on some level. Well, but, you know, we, we always say that uh, we are good friends and, you know, we are business partners and we don't really get into politics. We don't talk about it. We are, you know, we we kind of accept each other the way we are and as a, on a human kind of base and not what you believe or where you kind of, what side of the country you were born. Right. Um, but as I said earlier, people choose to choose a side. And and they're pushing you to choose a side, I'm sure, um, often, or to not, not involve politics in your story. Not really. Not really. They don't. Uh, we've been working together for the last almost uh, 20 years now together. We've been working together for so long uh, until um, Jerusalem was published. People thought we are like, you know, the, the stars of, you know, this kind of conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. And um, they want us to be on a pedestal, kind of showing that, you know, it actually can be done. Palestinians and Israelis can work together, can be harmony. And they knew how close we are to each other. But it didn't happen just before the book. We've been working for, for the last probably 12 years together. Is that fair to make you guys role models of mutual peace and comity? Not really. I mean, I always say that uh, for me, it's a, it's, it's a person. It's not, I mean, I grew up in a house where, you know, respect any religious. I mean, Jerusalem, you have to do it. Unfortunately, all the trouble came behind all that and afterward. But I, I respect people the way they are, doesn't matter what they choose or what kind of religious they are. Unfortunately, what happens in between the Palestinian and Israel is not good. But on a personal level, I just take the person the way he is. 
I mean, uh, this is how it should be, but it's it's not. It's not. It it sounds like such common sense when you say it, especially on a week where they're doing some of the same stupid dance, like firing a rocket to Tel Aviv and promising retaliation, and the election is making everything insane. And it's like I don't know. I mean, the ability to just tell your story in peace and tell it through food. Yeah. I, I want to say I, I wish it was there, but of course it was never there. Like you were never, you and, and Arolenghi were never a Swiss guy and an Austrian guy coming together to create great Central European food, right? I mean, this, these challenges were kind of baked into, into it from day one. But then when you think about it, it's, uh, we have a lot in common. Uh, you know, we come from the same place. We, we were born in the same city. We have the same, almost the same eating habits, we have the same palate as well. We agree and disagree about, you know, the same things when it comes to food. And this, that's a lot. That covers a lot. Uh, plus, we are friends. Plus, you know, uh, um, we speak the same language. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Hebrew and then English. So, uh, so yeah, there's quite a lot uh, that, you know, it's, it's not just a... It's, it's almost like a recipe for success, but to kind of... Yeah, you know, on a personal uh, kind it, of level, it's a recipe. Yeah, all right, good. Yeah. And you know, for for me, it's uh, it's cooking. It's always about the food. It's always about the, the cooking. It's always about feeding the people and creating really wonderful kind of food. So let me ask a simple uh, food question then: Is hummus Israeli or Palestinian? You know, we, we can't really trace. I would definitely say no. It's not in Israeli, but, uh, you know, we, we went back in kind of history and you can't really trace who, who, who started it first. We think it, it started, uh, for example, the falafel started in Egypt. Okay. By whom? That's a different story. That's right. Maybe. Homo started in, in, um, in the Levant, which is Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, then Israel now, Jordan. But who started it? Who owns it? I don't think we'll ever know. Who makes the best version now? Uh, they are both sides are you know they're totally different from each other. What's the difference? What's an Israeli hummus um, versus a Palestinian? Is, I mean nowadays Israeli Israeli hummus is quite good. Uh, Palestinian is a little bit more lemony and a little bit more heavy on the tahini. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, they are the same ingredients. Uh, Palestinians, I prefer Palestinian tahini than the Israeli one. I find it a little bit more nutty and smoother. The color is paler. Um, and I think a lot of Israelis also do. Yeah, just like secretly on the down yeah. low. They, they, they always this. have, you know, kind of a Palestinian uh, tahini jar at home. All right, well, let's get into to Palestine and the cooking uh, that, that went behind it. So how are you telling the story of, of the Palestinian kitchen, which is, as I've talked about with Yasmin Khan, who was on here, and, and the more I read about it, it's very diverse mm-hmm. for an incredibly small, packed place. How do you go about like kind of making that, you know, uh, turning that into a singular thesis in a singular, singular work? First, I need to mention that uh, Tara Wigley is also, you know, writing um, or wrote it with me. So she's she's got uh, a big part in, mm-hmm. you know, the writing. First of all, all the cookbooks in the market they are written by women. Um, <laughs> whether whether or not uh, all the cookbooks in the Palestinian market. Yeah, got it. Yeah, they're all written by women. Uh, these women were taught by their moms, and the mom was taught by the grandma. So they, it's a generation of kind of learning uh, these dishes. Um, I'm a man. Uh, I wasn't allowed in the, in the kitchen. I was always shushed out. Really? Yeah, because from little age, I was really interested in cooking, but uh, it's not, in a, you know, Arab-Palestinian... They didn't want to raise you weird like you Well, were, because, you yeah. know, it's a kind of, uh, you think... Uh, when women uh, get together and start to cook together in, in this society, they talk about a lot of, you know, they have to cover, you know, talking about sex and talking about this and that. So they don't want the little kids kind of standing there listening to what they 
got it it's yeah. it's for them a safe a safe place to yeah just exactly they want to thing. feel kind of free but also uh, men don't cook and is it even is that even true of like you know to take it from an american perspective at least the stereotype and and this wasn't really true in my family where where the men were all the cooks but generally it's like the men cook the meat and they'll do like the barbecue i mean my father was a food buyer and also healer and butchery and he used to cook at home but you know he did it for his own pleasure uh, not really he did it uh, because he liked cooking and he used to share the food with us my mom on the other hand she loved cooking but she wanted to share all the cooking she didn't want to eat kind of almost eat it uh, so we got the kind of a good balance where my, my father wanted to kind of cook for his own and my mom for the pleasure of feeding others. So I have both sides. Mm. Um, I love cooking, but also I, I love feeding. But, but you know, these are not recipes that you learned at your grandmother's knee no. in the kitchen no. growing up for the reasons that you're talking about. I think uh, because I left, uh, I was quite young when I left Palestine, Jerusalem, let's say. What kept me connected to the to the place and to my family is is the food. But also people that know me, they know that my mom always kind of in the background. Whenever I cook something, I always think what mom did with kind of this ingredient or say cauliflower. So even even not having been a part of cooking in that process, just as an eater of that food, you're getting yeah. all of that kind of generational. I, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm trained chef, but I have an amazing food memory. And, you know, I can trace back, you know, without even knowing how to, to cook the dish, I would just recreate it. Does that mean that you're going to remember the fact that I gave you subpar Prosecco out of mini bottles from Little Way well, Rose? <laughs> You'll remember this for decades yes. to come. <laughs> I'll, I'll call somebody when I have the hangover. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you have this food memory. So, so of course, that's the natural way when you leave Jerusalem to keep in touch with your memories of it and your your feelings about the place. Yeah, and you know, it's the, also the flavor, it's the, the it's the aroma, it's the smells. It's a lot of things that you know keep keep you connected to the place. Phone calls don't kind of do the job. Not not even fucking Skype. Uh, yeah, and when I I kind of felt a little bit nostalgic or. Um, I can actually cook the dish. So I, I would stand in my kitchen and recreate it or on the phone with my sister, how do you do this? And When know, did she, you leave Jerusalem? Uh, 97. 97. And you came, where you went where? To London, straight to London. Straight to London. Yeah. So you essentially had as a young man to just, you had food as the way to kind of like piece your life together, like what's happening in London versus how you grew up. Yeah. Um, did you start cooking immediately in London? Uh, yeah, um, I was already a chef when I arrived to, to London. Um, I, I actually started quite early. I started when I was a teenager in a hotel in Jerusalem on a school summer holiday. I wanted just to do something to earn a little bit of money. And I, put, I was put in this kitchen washing dishes. And then I was so curious about the whole cooking and and it's just a different kind of uh, way of uh, cooking than you know I kind of I've never seen something like this where you know there's like sections everybody does one part of the cooking and later on this big party comes in and you know they all have to work together to um, create this kind of feast wow. which, which is something that you know it sticks in your head because at home it's like my mom and maybe a couple of aunties come and cook together and they just feed everybody but in in a hotel it's like level of kind of preparation and each person have um a role the head chef was german and his, his sous chef was also german so they had this kind of Oh my! A really strict way of working. That's an education for a teenager. Well, he liked me. Um, he saw a potential in me because I was so curious and I uh, really fast learning. You know, in in a couple of weeks I was running um, the breakfast section on my own, and I was eighteen, I think. 
That's amazing because in the early 90s, I, I too had washed dishes and all I could think about was how do I get out of this entire industry? <laughs> so, you know, it's just yeah, like, I mean, I mean you know, do you th- I, I didn't have um, such a big dream. I was just I was so curious about it. And I knew uh, when I started doing the breakfast, it was hideous. It was so horrible. I have to wake up at like three o'clock in the morning to be able to scramble eggs for 150 people that stuff for 18 years old but you learn quite a lot and then you you re- i realized that actually i love this it's, it's so it's so much fun and i want to know more so i was leaving my my home cooking and learning new techniques and cuisines but only when i um just before i left to to london in 97 i realized that I actually have all the right elements to uh, work between what we call Western and Middle Eastern. Right. This hotel in Jerusalem, that's a Western breakfast you're talking about. It's kind of a mix. A little mix. Okay. But um, when I started here in London, I worked in a a food shop, a little food shop behind Harrods in Knightsbridge. And they did pastries and bread. And she wanted me to create some kind of treter section. So I just did huge salad, very colorful, very flavorsome. It's kind of similar to what we do at the moment at Tlangi. Uh, all the best ingredients, uh, very heavily Middle Eastern. And people were queuing for it. Really? Yeah. And she had not asked for that necessarily? She, but... she didn't know what I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And it took her by surprise. And I was her kind of almost like a... Uh, if you ask Yota me, like, I was her kind of spoiled child. Right. <laughs> so. She allowed you to do whatever you wanted, yeah. and it turned you into somebody who went out and did what he wanted and, and brought these things to life. Yeah, it was, That's how it's supposed to work, Exactly, right? and um, I'll turn up in the morning, I cook, I make dishes that you know I just want to do, and then they sell really well. Sometimes they didn't, but you know, you didn't kind of care, just go and give it to the staff. Um, <laughs> And move on to the next. Yeah, so it, it kind of created this uh, wave of before had before that in London there were just kind of Italian delis and really sad food kind of sandwiches wrapped in clim film and so there were not nothing. The, the Baker and Spice was kind of the, 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 the beginning of this quality home cooked wholesome flavorsome Middle Eastern food. London and, you know, I want to be careful because anything I say about the UK is super presumptuous because we have all of our own uh, delinquencies and deficits in the United States. And I I haven't been here in a a God's age and who knows. But I always thought of it as a place where the people were much more interesting than the food. Because even in the 90s, you're saying London was an incredibly diverse, cosmopolitan, multicultural Thing. And one thing that everybody had in common is they had to eat this crap. <laughs> I mean, you know, broadly speaking, sandwiches and cling film, things that and And I mean, I just walked down the street for lunch and had a goat curry from a Jamaican box on Blackfriars. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. And it was like, I, for me, it's like that's what London. I hope it's what it's doing now. It's what you and your time are doing. It's it's the ability to actually take the resources that you have here and create really good, and uh, in this case, cheap and accessible and affordable. And in your case, really refined and and just kind of pushing the envelope to just make it reflect the people who are actually here. Yeah. It's also, I mean, London in in that sense, uh, it's a great place. I can't see it happening anywhere else. Even New York, it's a bit kind of, for me, it's a little bit reserved. They are, you know, you know, uh, South American, kind of Italian, but nothing like London. The ability for people to uh, accept you, even if you know you open a new concept or with different flavor, people will go and eat, and uh, they they are. What's the, it's like thirsty for uh, you know new new flavors, and they will try everything. And it's it's also to do with you know the the, the structure of London, and also the people that live in London, um, more than anybody anywhere in the, in the world. We have amazing kind of different places now, and uh, everything is booming. Well, I mean, it's kind of what I wanted to ask you about 
Palestinian London or Middle Eastern London yeah. because to bring New York up, we live not far or our office is not far from, you know, a Syrian little enclave where you can get all of the, you know, all the Syrian desserts you want and mm-hmm. so on. But it feels mediated somehow. Like it always feels like the best stuff is probably happening behind closed doors and it's not, you know, but, but London, I, I guess to my mind and, and maybe this is total bullshit, but it feels like it's a, a bit closer to, I mean, physically it's close to the Middle East through colonialism. It's, it's like there's been a more direct kind of like vein between the two places does that does that resonate at all, or no, do you still feel like this is it's just sort of an uh, a, a mediated immigrant, you know, facsimile of what what is happening in the Middle East? Yeah, no, I, I don't see the connection between uh, you know London and the Middle East so much. I yeah, mean, although you know we, the British were occupying the Middle East for so long, there, there isn't uh, the food kind of there isn't anything that kind of connect them with the food. The food came later on. I mean, Lebanese uh, brought it two, three centuries away. But, you know, it was um, badly executed, uh, unloved. You know, you feel, you know, using tomatoes that are not in the season to create something that comes from the sunshine. Uh, so it kind of lacked this love. Uh, but it's, it kind of brought something new to, to, the, to the people in London. Um, it also brought uh, nostalgia to... Middle Easterns and Lebanese people that lived in London. Even poorly executed versions would still be something. Yeah, because, you know, when you're kind of yearning for home cooking, your home cooking, uh, you are willing to accept, okay, it's, it wasn't the, the best dish I ever had, but it's very close to what I had as a child. Um, talking of Palestinian uh, restaurants, there aren't many actually in London. Really? There are, uh, yeah, a handful. Uh, few reasons. I mean, uh, Palestinian food uh, or dishes are better at home than in a restaurant. Really? Is that, a, yeah, is that a thing you can say about a cuisine, that it's like it's home cooking, not restaurant cooking? Yeah. Why? It, because it's a, it's a lot about, you know, uh, doing a big dishes and sharing it with, you know, your, your kids or your friends or your family. So, you know, it's one big dish that you put in the middle and you kind of... Uh, have it with few salads and little dishes and but it's it's that sense that you would that com- communality is kind it, of it's that and also the generosity and also you know hospitality it all comes all together with Palestinian cook cooking. I mean and the I don't know I don't want to get into that too much but the antiseptic nature of what we accept as restaurant culture especially high restaurant culture you know these days but through from Tour d'Argent on down just like two to four people sitting quietly at a table in a bubble. uh, Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, uh, uh, Palestinian uh, food, you you cannot refine. It's it's very robust. A lot of it is kind of beige, brown, delicious. But, you know, it's lacking. Man, how do you Instagram that stuff? Uh, You just walk around it. (laughs) It actually talks to a lot of people, even, you know, when it's brown, you just talk about it and... Um, the, the reaction of people because you know either you grew up and and having it or you kind of have had it as an adult so you you know the flavors you kind of familiar with what it is and it kind of you know triggers something in you but going back to Palestinian cooking also you know with the book Palestine when I when we started the whole process I had in mind you know traditional food and it took me a while to kind of shred that out and just kind of thinking okay who's gonna buy this book who is gonna buy this book um european australian uh hopefully american canadian yeah you, you hear that american listeners yeah we're, so we're op- open your wallets next yeah. year so that just affects the way that you are going to describe the food the recipes that you want to bring forward I didn't. I didn't want to do a, a cookbook about myself. I wanted to do a book about the place and the people and the, the cuisine, um, and show how diverse it is. Palestine now it's it's a small kind of territory. It's not big, but um, 50, 60 years ago, people had you know their own kind of dishes and traditions and flavoring. Now it's all kind of mixing all together because everybody's cooking each other dishes and. 
it's all kind of so from from, from the Galilee to the yeah. West Bank to the to the coastal, which is you know Acre and Nazareth and Haifa to Jerusalem in the in the mountains uh, uh, to Hebron and Nablus, they all have their own kind of typical flavor and dishes, and it's a it's a very uh, it's a food that co- very connected to the land. You know, they forage a lot. They very connected to what they uh, grow in their kind of little piece of land. But you're saying that's kind of compressing these days. I mean, yeah, because unfortunately the Palestine is getting smaller, smaller and smaller. There's less territory, yes. and then also the identities are becoming more monolithic. And because, also they they're yeah. losing their their lands, so right, they uh, their resources are now dependent on other places that can produce or the Israeli side. No, it's kind of sad because I was uh, we used to get a lot of uh, baladi, which is. It's a kind of equivalent of organic food that used to come from the villages by women carrying it and selling it in uh, corner of the street or the market, and it doesn't exist anymore. Baladi is gone. Yeah, it's, it's all in stores, little grocers. No, there's no none of that even because people can make a living from growing tomatoes, so they turned into something else, hmm. which is kind of a little bit. Uh, you kind of lo- it's something that you, it got lost for forever. Well, and there's also that thing where the same cuisine executed with different ingredients, and I would say better ingredients. I, I don't know. It reminds me when I, I lived in Cuba, mm-hmm. and I grew up very close to Cuba in, in Key West, which is 90 miles away, but is an American yeah. uh, city. But when we went to Cuba, I spent the whole time I was living there just dreaming of Cuban food in, in Key West. Not for any other reason besides we had good ingredients in Key West. And in Havana in the 90s, they had total shit ingredients. So they may have had all the knowledge, and certainly this is where the food originated from. They just could not execute yeah. on that level. Here you are. I mean, your first job was in Knightsbridge. London is an impossibly, disgustingly rich place where also you can get, you have access to really quality ingredients, mm-hmm. uh, I think, up and down the line. Um, is that change how you can cook Palestinian food here? Yeah, because the ingredients are, um, I mean, the demand for better ingredients and also different ingredients from different countries uh, gone up so quickly the last 15 years that you can now get anything you want. And most of the time, I, I don't go to supermarkets anymore. I just go to my local shops and buy, you know, shop for, for ingredients from the Middle East, and including vegetables and fruit. So um, I'm happy. Great, uh, you have the best of both worlds. It's You've also, got the yeah, traditions and the culture. It's much easier as well to cook. Uh, for the cookbook, it's different because you have to shop in a kind of uh, high street, like some places like Waitrose and uh, Sainsbury's, because this is where most people shop. Correct. So when we when we do recipes for a book, you deliberately go to the supermarket and buy you know your ingredients from there. Just to figure out, like you know, it's not because you want to you want to be real. You want to be honest to to the recipe and to the person that cooks the recipe. Um, besides Sainsbury, did you have other travel experiences related to putting the book together? We I, went uh, to Palestine a few times. We're gonna go again in in the spring. Well, spring is in June. Um, first time we went, we just kind of meeting people and eating food and just kind of hearing stories. The second time I went, we just kind of uh, just to enforce that. And it was clear that we wanted to do as many profiles of different people, amazing kind of food related, but not really getting any recipes from that. For example, a lady that her life is basically doing maftul, which is a little bit like couscous. It's a Palestinian kind of version of couscous. And she devoted her life for that. She's very well known. And it's amazing. It's just kind of, she. all she does is maftul and everybody knows her. And she, her products actually gets to the UK and gets sold here. The master of maftul will then be 
um, a sidebar, an interstitial, a chapter, a, a feature in the book yeah, to and, tell these stories. Yeah, and you meet her and she's this kind of really humble, she doesn't speak any English and she just wants to share her knowledge and her food and she would be happy kind of sitting on the floor and making maftul for you. Uh, and Or, you know, this kind of eccentric hotelier that kind of see the world through his kind of vision and he wouldn't listen to anybody else's kind of ideas. So yeah, different kind of personalities and it's it's really to showcase the place and how diverse is it and the, the amazing dishes but also the amazing people as well because, you know, coming from there I know how wonderful Palestinians are but, you know, when you, when you hear these days Palestinian, all you think is, you know, bombing and war and uh, shooting and stabbing. But actually, most Palestinians just want to live their life. Yeah, most most people. Quietly. <laughs> it is, it is um, the amount of oxygen that these these tougher stories can take yeah. from the rest of humanity yeah. is always the challenge. Do you, do you feel like, I mean, in this book, in your own work and talking about it, you don't want to talk about conflict, but as you mentioned, there's a land crisis in Palestine, and that's not a natural disaster. This there. is, this was, is uh, yeah. you know, we, we used to call it uh, food wars, <laughs> where it doesn't matter what you touch, even if it's food or not food in, in this region, it turns into politics. So it was clear from the beginning that for me to create this kind of book, it's going to create a whole kind of political kind of, conflict from both sides, I think, because uh, from the Israeli side, it's kind of uh, ownership. Right. From the Palestinian, why Why did you decide to do it after so many years and working with, with Israelis? And so... I mean, is there a part of you, I know you've answered this question over the decades from, I would presume, your own, your own people, but like, is there a part of you that, that has something to say about why you work with an Israeli and I I I don't really see it this way but we 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 are not political at all I mean me and your term and we don't really it's not in our kind of daily running life that we sit and talk about the problems of the Middle East uh, it just happened that I'm Palestinian and he's Israeli and uh, I didn't feel any kind of feelings or guilt or undermining Palestinian or my the place that they came from and you and if people brought those feelings to you you're very comfortable in just sort of swatting them inside I am a chef I am a, I'm not I'm not there to solve you know the problem in between the Palestinian and Israeli right so. my I mean me and Tara created this amazing cookbook it talks about the, the land it talks about the people it talks about the, the amazing food that they cook and it's a bloody good book so this is what i have to say that has to be an effective uh as a palestinian yeah. i'm really proud of it yeah and i think you know it's gonna be um it's it's not a traditional palestinian cookbook there's quite a lot of traditional dishes but uh, i wanted to do something that you know i i always did kind of this mashup cooking where you know you just take one ingredients from this region and just kind of turn it into with this book I was a little bit more cautious so this this takes you back to more of a, a, a pristine line of, you want of to, cooking yeah because you know Palestinian cook uh, cooking is um, sometimes it's a time consuming it I mean a dish can take up to three days it's, a, it's heavy on sugars so heavy on uh, fats um, so I wanted it to be a little bit more accessible and so you can actually wrestle it after work in you know on Wednesday, and you right. don't you don't have three hours with with a trip to the supermarket. Yeah, uh, exactly. Tell me, since we are in, in London and we are talking about uh, the way that this food has landed and how you've landed, what for people who haven't eaten at Autolang, you haven't eaten your food. What is like for you? What feels like that kind of mashup between West and Middle East that that is like a signature Sami Tamimi? Like, this is what you bring. I mean, uh, our food is a you eat it and you feel ah, oh, I know these flavors, but 
I don't know this combination. And it's, it's a lot about that, where you, I didn't grow up eating uh, beets, for example. And I, I, I just think beets are wonderful. Wait, so you didn't grow up eating beets because beets are nasty or because, no, because Palestinians no, don't they, eat it's beets? No, it's not in their cuisine. Uh, okay, so, so, so the, you're I, presenting beets. I, I'm presenting beets with tahini and um, the same herbs that we use for a salad, which is mint and parsley or coriander. Uh, with a little bit of spring onions, the dressing is pomegranate molasses and olive oil. So they all kind of familiar res- uh, ingredients. But you think, oh, I didn't grow up eating this beetroot, but all the other flavors are kind of something that I had before. That's interesting. Uh, so you kind of have this transit to childhood. Okay, I had this dish, but it wasn't this. Interesting. Uh, so what is it? So I, I, we take, I mean, I'm talking about myself now, I take one, one element of the or dish or, or the dish itself and I kind of play with it. And, and using, I mean, the, the beet or another great British tuber, um, like the turnip or something. Yeah. And, that, you know, that, I mean, in London especially, we are so spoiled. We have everything here. So you get, you get um, the best of everything, even from the Middle East. So you can actually choose and... Play with it. I don't want to stand three hours doing a dish. I mean, I'm happy to do it from time to time, but the, nobody have time for that. You know, people are. Life is fast now, and life is needing of you know. Okay, I'm gonna go to the supermarket. It's five ingredients. I'm gonna buy them. I, I have the rest in my cupboard in my fridge, and I'm gonna spend twenty minutes cooking dinner for me, my partner, and the two kids and a dog. And this is reality. People don't want, they, they don't have the time to spend two, three, four hours cooking a meal for two. I, I also have two kids and a dog and a partner and no time. Uh, and I mean, the thing that, that is, I think for me, is a, a disastrous home cook, uh, if we're going to be honest. The thing that I'm always looking for are those, the context to get excited about the ability to make something better. And then also just a few tricks to jump out of my own flavor rut, you know. For, do, you, do you follow recipes? Uh, I I do probably more uh, more than a, a talented cook would. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, so it needs to be something that is actually spelled out because when they're just like you know, do this to taste. I'm like, but I have no taste. That's why I'm reading your yeah. book. <laughs> Are you familiar with our books? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing you now. <laughs> <clears throat> so my favorite from page eighty two of Autolenghi. We always cook for the home person it's not uh, we don't try to do fancy i mean we did um, we did that with with nopi the cookbook because mm-hmm. it's just it's the story of of the restaurant it's not but most of the books are really cooked in a um home home kitchen where you know our test kitchen is created to be like a home cook a home kitchen so but also all the cooking a lot of it you know i'm for example with Palestine, I started at home in my kitchen. Mm. So you try the recipes there and then you take them to the test kitchen. And um, So when you go down for this next trip in June, are you going to be cooking? Are you going to set up a test kitchen? You're just going to kind of uh, invade no, people's kitchens? We're going back with the, with the, the lady that uh, is doing our photography for the book. Her name is Jenny. And uh, we're going to just revisit all the places and all the people that we did. And it's for her to basically capture as much uh, of the feeling and also the faces. Uh, it'll be important when you talk about somebody to get a sense of how they look like. Mm. Um, and what the land looks like too, because it's also surprising, I think, to people who just watch the nightly news. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like what a fucking Garden of Eden parts of Palestine, you know, have been and still are. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's a, uh, a. It's it's a place full of contradictions, and you know, uh, there there are beautiful parts and really really ugly parts. Yeah. Uh, there are you know places where they you know burn garbage because they don't have where to to get rid of it but also there are people that you know they still farm their their land and it's a beautiful green place and um, they produce really wonderful food all right but they all like to cook and eat and and wonderful food and they have they they have a they have something to, to tell the world 
through Palestine. Yeah, co- and you can eat really well, and they're very hospitable. They're really kind of like to get people around and just sit and eat and talk about food. And you know, you never leave hungry when you go to Palestinian. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's leave it there. That is a promise for a book that's coming out next year. That March 2020. Uh, that we're incredibly excited about. Now, is that just UK or when are we going to get it in the States? Uh, it's going to start in the UK, um, Europe and Australia. And then in the States and Canada at the same time. Right. I think two months later. For somebody who needs a semi, you know, hit like now and mm. doesn't want to wait till March 2020. Jerusalem, Biotelengi and Samitamimi. It's a... It's a it's a nice story, first of all, and it tells um, the story of a, a city. Uh, and a lot of the dishes uh, f- from the book are dishes that I grew up on eating. So, and people that have the book or will get it, they'll kind of soon figure out which are, you know, the Palestinian, which are the Israeli. All right. Well, we'll put it all in the show notes. And now it's time to crush the rest of this 200 milliliters of. <laughs> Little Weight Rose Prosecco. Thank you, Sammy. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. On this episode, Taffy Mukinyadzi was our editor, Emily Marinoff, our producer, Alexa Van Sickle, our online editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode artwork by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms author of Pasta Pane Vino, the 2019 food book of the year in the UK. Buy that book and buy Palestine, a cookbook. They would look great together on your shelf. Special thanks to Jamie Lyons and the people at Luminary for helping us bring these episodes from last year to the public feed. Next week on Monday, we have a brand new Everywhere episode, the second of our Berlin series. We are rooting around in a Berlin wine cellar with Billy Wagner, the iconoclastic sommelier and restaurateur behind Berlin's Nobelhart and Schmutzig. Coming Monday, September 7th. And then on Thursday, the re-release of our previously paywalled episodes, now free and for the people, continues. We will be in North London in Highgate at the home of Sacred Gin's co-founder Hilary Whitney. I, as Her Majesty's warranted provisioner of high-quality, drinks-based interview podcasts, could not possibly do London justice without talking to a real-life, actual gin maker. And Hillary and her partners make some of the finest gin in the realm. We will meet you there. <laughs>